The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We have been in the book of Philippians for 10 weeks, and so we are going to round out uh, this book. Uh, it's been a very, very encouraging book. Um, I'm really excited to finish it up, um, hopefully kind of round out um, Paul's heart for this particular church. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4. Uh, We're going to be reading from 10 to 23. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul has been writing this letter from prison. It's a church he planted 10 years ago. Um, He's experienced great difficulty. over the past four years, and it's been a really, really hard time, yet as we read this book, we read this letter that he's written to these people, he is constantly filled with joy. Um, I'm a parent, I have four kids. Now, as a parent, there are a few rules that you need to, to have in your kind of wheelhouse. Uh, one of those important rules is no favorites, but every parent knows we have favorites. No, we don't. Okay, um, we're not supposed to have favourites. We don't have favourites. We love every kid equally the same, except for the naughty ones. Uh, no, uh, we love all kids the same, right? But but when you read this letter, it's like it seems like seems like the Philippian church is Paul's favourite. Uh, if you read the book of Galatians, he, he, not his favourite. Corinthians, not his favourite. Philippians, you're like, man, there's just so much joy. There's so much love. There's so much encouragement. And it's almost like this is his favorite kid that he is writing to. But he is writing here because there is this depth of love and affection for this church and likewise for them. And so he's, he's finishing this letter. This is like his goodbye, his thank you to this church. And I think he's got three things that he wants them to see and to remember. You with me? All right, number one, he wants them to learn about contentment. Okay, so the first thing we see is Paul's contentment. Have you ever experienced great disappointment? Anyone here experienced disappointment in life? Okay, what is disappointment? Disappointment is unmet expectations. It's the feeling we get when I thought this was going to happen. I I thought the relationship was going to end and go to this direction and it didn't, so I'm I'm disappointed. I thought this job would would give me this satisfaction or would lead to these opportunities and, and it hasn't. Uh, when, when Paul was not a Christian, he had these expectations of his life, and they were moving in the direction towards being the great Pharisee. He was, he was going to be the next elite sort of leader of the Jewish people, and then he meets Jesus, and that doesn't quite happen. 
all the people who he had that were admiring him now turned against him. And so he had to learn how to deal with that disappointment. Then following Jesus, he has ideas in his head. He, he has this promise that he, he believes, this, this call that he believes that God has called him to go and be like this apostle to the Gentiles, apostle to the non-Christian world, the non-Jewish world, to go over and go to Rome. So he sets his eyes, he sets his heart. If you read the book of Acts, you see him just constantly talking about, we're going to Rome, we're going to Rome, because this is the Roman Empire, and if we can get into the heart of the city and the gospel can get in there, it'll change the entire world. And he gets to Rome. He just didn't come as he thought he would. He comes in chains. He gets put in prison. He has two years in prison in Caesarea. He then catches a boat. It gets shipwrecked. He's on the island of Patmos. He's a couple of weeks, and then he finally gets to Rome, and then he's back in prison. And so he's sitting in prison, unmet expectations, not the way he thought it would be, yet he says that he is content. How is he content? It's not because he lacks ambition, right? Some people are content in life because they're like, meh. Paul is not meh. Paul is like, let's roll. Gone in 60 seconds, let's roll. Okay? He is like, let's go, let's take the world. He's an ambitious person, but he is content because his ambition is not in himself. So he says this, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. I love this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Yes, you are. You're in need. Like when you read this letter, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like, no, no, you were in need. But he's like, but that's not the point. The point was not that I was in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. And I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. Um. I was a Christian throughout the 90s, and so as soon as I see the word secret, it kind of gives me triggers, because every sermon was about the five secrets to this, and the seven secrets to that, and here's the secret to a praying life, the secret to this life. But it's in, it's in the Bible, as a secret, okay? So I've got to go, okay, let, let, the, let the past get healed, Kylum, it's going to be fine. Um, he has a secret on how to be content. And I think it's important for us as modern people that we should probably listen to how he finds contentment because we are discontent people. We don't know how to be content. We struggle with contentment. And he says, I love this, he says that he learnt it. This is not something that happened in Paul's life overnight. This is something that has happened over the past 10 years, 20 years of his life where he's learning how to be content. He wasn't always content. He hasn't always been content, but he has learnt over time how to be content. It's been hard. And I love this because what he's doing is like, hey, you all see the Instagram stories and you think I'm just a superhero Christian guy. You see the perfect family. You see the perfect pictures, but I'm going to let you in behind the scenes. It's not always been like this. It's actually been really hard. I've had to learn this. God has had to teach me how to be content. And so he says, I've learned how to handle success and I've learned how to handle failure. I've learned how to handle being put on a pedestal and I've also learned how to be abandoned. I've learned how to handle the good times, the bad times. I've learned how to handle prosperity and money and influence and I've learned how to handle not having those things. Now this word contentment, it's a really, really important word to the Roman context. Okay, Romans have this 
Aristotelian and Stoic background in their philosophy and how they understand the world. And contentment is a, a moral virtue for Romans. And the Stoics would teach, here's how you become content. You put aside your feelings, you put aside your emotions, you engage your reason, and you do mind over matter. Just buckle up, tell yourself it's all good, and just be content. Deny yourself, engage your reason, engage your mind, and put it to use. One Stoic philosopher said, A man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. It was a moral virtue for someone to be able to say, Life sucks, but it doesn't change me because I am Stoic. And so you could look at somebody and go, Man, life's looking really hard. And they're like, I'm, I'm fine. Why? Because I'm self-sufficient and I've gone into myself and I've engaged my mind and I've engaged my reason and this was how they would teach people in the Roman context. Deny emotions. Mind over feelings. You and I live in the complete opposite culture. Our culture is saying, opposite. Drop your mind, stop thinking, stop using reason and rationality and feelings. If you feel like this, then you are this. Go with your feelings. Don't deny your feelings. Embrace your feelings. We live different to the ancients. But what the, the deny your, your mind and engage your emotions does is it leads us to be led by our emotions. And so what we are currently in is, is in a generation who we would say are weak-minded. They, they fleet depending on how they feel. But the exact same thing happens and the same result happens is you go into yourself sufficient in yourself. So if you feel like this, if you th think this about yourself, then you, you do you. You be you. Nobody gets to tell you who you are. So, so the ancients would embrace the mind over the emotions. Our culture says embrace the emotions over the mind, and Christianity says we need both. You need to be able to think rationally, and you need to be able to feel. Christianity is both a thinking religion and a feeling religion. It is, it is both. It says engage the mind and engage the feelings, but don't become self-sufficient. In those, go outside to someone who made those things. Don't become sufficient in and of yourself. So the secret to contentment in this world is not adapting and depending on self as you engage your mind, but you deny your emotions, nor is it adapting and depending on yourself as you embrace your feelings and disengage your mind. Paul says, no, 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 contentment comes from not finding sufficiency in yourself, so both are equally wrong. You need to go to the one who made you. That is the only way you can find contentment, is be in a relationship with the transcendent being who gave you your mind and gave you your Emotions. And so how does he say he does this? Well, he says, I can do all things through the verse that is taken out of context. Shane Corrigan said this a few weeks ago, right? This is the, the most taken out of context verse I've probably ever heard. Um, it's almost as, you know, anyway, we won't go through all of them. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me isn't, I really want a Ferrari, so I'm just going to, oh, there it is. And I'm just going to like pour money in and it's going to come in um, like I really wish that was true because my body would look a lot different and my tan would be way better if I could just do mind over matter. Um, I can do all things, what does he say? Through Christ. 
So I can have riches and I can have poverty. Neither will affect my identity in Christ is what he's saying. Because I'm rooted in Jesus, because I'm grounded in Jesus, because I get my identity from Jesus, because he made me in his image. He died for me. Therefore, whether life's going great or life's not going great, it doesn't change me because I'm not this one who's swayed by their emotions and my mind is set. It's not swinging from left to right. It is set that Jesus made me in his image. I have value, dignity, and worth no matter what the world throws at me, no matter what I have in my, my bank account, no matter how my relationships are, that is set so I can be content. I love this about the Christian gospel. It grounds us. He says in this letter, he's, he's said to us that he, that he knows what he ultimately deserves, which is a life apart from God. That's what he deserves. Yet he gets nothing but all of God. And so for him to be in prison is not for him to miss out. He's like, if Christ is with me in prison, I have everything. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But everything Minus Jesus equals nothing. So why is he content? Because he has everything he needs. He knows the eternal God who made him. That eternal God has promised to be with him no matter where he goes, no matter what he experiences. So on his down day, he's not deflated. He's like, yeah, it's, it's a tough day. He doesn't deny his feelings. You see throughout his letters, he, he's happy to admit when life's tough. Life's tough, but guess what? God's with me. So, so yes, I'm experiencing disappointment, but I am not. I am not broken. I am not defeated because I have Jesus with me. Jesus loves me. Jesus is for me. He knows that he is in God's good care. He's said throughout this letter so many times that he is in the sovereign hand of God and God is working his plan out in his life. And so he's showing us examples, and you see this at the end of the letter. He's like, hey, I wanted to come to Rome so I could tell all of the Romans about Jesus, and I got put in prison. And I'm chained to the praetorium guard, who were just on shift work over and over and over and over again. What I didn't realize when I first came to Rome was if I was going to influence Rome, they're the most important people of the future kingdom of Rome. Because after 12 years of service, they go and they start to become all the counselors of all the divisions and all the provinces of Rome. And so if there's, a, if there's a, like a, a niche group that you could get converted to Christianity, a niche group that could even get into the house of Nero, it'd be these guys. And so they're tied to Paul. Paul, after a while, we don't know how long it takes him, after a while goes, huh, not only am I in chains, bloke, you're in chains. You can't unchain yourself to me because Nero will kill you. So guess what? Shout to the Lord of the earth. And he just starts singing, shout to the Lord, and all of his favorite hymns, come now, fount comes out. And then he just starts gospeling them and gospeling them and telling them all about Jesus. And one after another, we find out that they start getting saved so that even those in the household of Nero, because Nero had this big mansion that was away from everyone, because that's how elites live. And guess what? The only people that are allowed in that mansion are his family, his confidence, and the praetorium guard, so the praetorium guard gets saved, walk into Nero's house, start telling Nero's wife about Jesus, start telling Nero's mum about Jesus, start telling Nero's kids about Jesus, so much so that we have historical record that says he kills all of them because they become Christians. And at the end of the letter, he's like, Caesar's household says to say day. God has my life. 
And he is using this circumstance of being in jail, which feels miserable. It's hard, yes. But God is using that, and he is turning a Roman Empire upside down from the inside out. So Paul is able to be content because he knows who he serves. He knows who's with him. He has Jesus. Church, if you're a Christian, guess what? I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I do know. You have Jesus, whatever that is. God is with you, whatever that is. Some of you have got stuff coming up in the future that you're not ready for. When that stuff comes to you, you need to go back to this and go, hey, listen, I I have Jesus. I have God. I'm not alone in this. God is with me. Therefore, like Paul, I can be content. Number two, he moves on to the Philippian generosity. He now moves to thank them. And he points to this evidence of God being active in his life through these people. Now, you and I live in a culture where relationships are based on entitlement and transaction. This is, this is how our culture is educating us and discipling us to their worldview. Uh, entitlement is, I deserve this and I don't have, therefore I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy. Entitlement is always looking at what, I, what my rights are, what I don't have, and if I don't have them, then I can't be satisfied and I will be disappointed. If you want to be disappointed in life, have an entitlement mentality. And Paul goes through, we've seen this in the letter, Paul goes through and says, hey, Christians don't have an entitlement mentality because they realize that we actually have more than what we deserve. So if you want to have a conversation around what we deserve, it doesn't go well for us. Because we don't deserve God, we don't deserve goodness, we don't deserve kindness, we, we deserve separation from God, that's what we all deserve, but we don't get that, we get the opposite. So for, for Christians, we don't have an entitlement mentality, we have a grace mentality which says, oh man, I am well blessed. Yeah, but you're in, you're in jail, Paul, with chains. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 bro, I'm blessed. Why? Because I've got God, right? So that's the mentality. Our culture says, no, no, keep looking at what you don't have, but we also live off a transaction. Transactional relationships are, I'll do this for you, but you better do that for me. And when you don't do that, relationships, not really sure how it's going. So, for example, we understand the term contract culturally. A contract is, I don't trust you, you don't trust me, so let's write something down and we're going to base this relationship on mutual distrust so that if you break what you say you're going to do, I've got an out and I can come and sue you, I can come and ask for that. That's cultural language. We understand that. The Bible uses covenantal language. Covenantal language is not based on mutual distrust, but mutual commitment. We see this in Jesus. Jesus comes and dies for us and says, I'm doing this for you before you do anything. And I'm not doing it to get something from you, I'm doing it because I'm fully committed to you. And then he says, if if you want to bring the the commitment back to me, great. But Jesus didn't wait for you and me to sort ourselves out, get to the point where we could make the same commitment. He, he did it, right? And so culture uses contract. Church, culture, Christianity, Bible language is covenant. It is based on mutual commitment. Therefore, if you break your end of the deal, that's okay because I didn't do that for you based on what you would give me. I'm committed to you regardless of what you do. Do you see the difference? What that means is there's not a back door that's constantly open. You see this in marriage, right? It's like cultural marriage is like, hey, we'll get married, but I've also got a door open just in case. And then, okay, 
shut the door, go. Christian marriage says, it's not, I'm in. Back door doesn't exist. I built a wall there. So yes, I have my moments where I'm like, oh, dang, there's a wall there. It's like I was trying to get out. Dang it, I forgot we built that wall. Ah. Now, this is exactly what the Roman culture is like. It's transactional. All of Roman cultural relationships are vertical-based. Okay? In a Roman context, you actually don't have a whole lot of friends. You have family, and then you have patrons or clients. This is how their culture... So I'll throw this up on the screen. Right? So they, they had this patron-client relationship. So this is a Roman culture. Okay? 1% to 2% were wealthy lenders. Right? These are your political, military, religious people. 50% of the total wealth of the country. How bizarre. Who would have thought that could be possible, that the elites would have most of the wealth in the world? Anyone heard of this? I've never seen such a thing. That's crazy. Uh, 3% were like the wealthy bureaucrats, the government officials, and then 50%, 15% were like your middle class people. Okay? 70% of a Roman context were basically poor. They live hand to mouth every single day. Now, one third of their context are in some form of slavery. So you could actually have middle-class people who are bankers, merchants, and artisans, etc., who would actually be in some form of slavery. In other words, they would get indebted to those above them. And what happened was, is if you're in that sort of poor, outcast part of the context, the only way you can survive is if you go up the food chain through vertical relationships and find someone who would lend to you, help you. And so you have these relationships, and these people, once they give to you, I don't know if you've ever heard of such a thing, but then you owe them with interest. Have you heard of this? I don't know, maybe you have a mortgage. I don't know. Okay, there's a sense of like, hey, we need this. Can you help us? And then those people will hold you account for the rest of your life until you pay that back. So literally about a third of the Roman Empire live off this vertical relationships. In this book, these people have lent to Paul. And Paul says, we do not have vertical relationships. There is one vertical relationship. It's the people, the created people, with the created God. And even in that relationship, he didn't give to us and give us something that we owe him. He came and gave his life for us. He became one of us and turned the vertical relationship into horizontal relationships. So now Christians in this empire, Paul is saying, this is how it works. You and I are no longer working off vertical relationships. We're working off horizontal. There's mutuality here. To a Roman mind, when they're reading this, they're like, this is bizarre. We read it and we think this is normal because we live in Australia. Look at the language. It was kind of you to share my trouble. Horizontal, not vertical. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. That's koinonia. We looked at that in the early weeks of this book. That's this deep sense of friendship and mutuality in giving and receiving. Look at the language. Kindness, sharing, concern. And the language of Paul back to them is the same. You, my dear children, my brothers, my, my, my colleagues, he's constantly speaking in this language of this is not based on vertical transaction. You give to me, therefore I give to you. No, no, this is based on the fact that Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus has changed your life. And now we're in this thing together. We're a family. We are friends. The Roman Empire had never thought of friendship in this way. 
and they can't break it. They try to break it. You read the books, you read the stories, over and over, the Roman Empire trying to disrupt and bring disunity to the Christian church, and they can't because it's based on something that they don't have. And it's not a transaction between one person and another that you can then hold over someone and say, well, you didn't do this, so therefore I'm not going to do that. Well, you said this about me, therefore well, I'm going to say that. It's like, no, no, we're in this together. How do we love? How do we serve? How do we give? How do we receive? And church, we are in a time in our culture where if the world was to look into the church world, they should see a community that they can't understand either. Where they go, well, why do you hang out with them when they're that age and look like that and live in that socioeconomic and have that level of education and you're this? And we would say, because we're one family. There is no hierarchical sort of level of who's up the top and who's down the bottom. It is equal Jew and Gentile, equal male and female. There's a sense of like we, we are this one family. And so the rich, James challenges and said, hey, you, you should hang out with the poor. The educated should hang out with the lower educated because what unites us is not our education status, not our social status, not where we live, where we work, where we play. It's that Jesus died for me and Jesus died for you. Jesus made me and Jesus made you. Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. Jesus forgive me and Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has empowered me. Jesus has empowered you. The world, as it continues to tribalize, I believe is going to be confounded by the church who continues to unify. And they're going to go, how do you have that? Because we'd love that. And we'd say, Jesus. Amen? And then he finishes with God's grace. So he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. He's worshipping. He's finishing with worship. Hello, Amen. But like every preacher, he's not quite finished. <laughs> greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I don't know if that's a jab at, at Caesar and Nero. Often Paul in other letters has used kind of like coded language so he doesn't give away particular people and who they are. And here he's like, huh. His wife says g'day. <laughs> His mum says hi. His kids say g'day. I don't know why he does this. I feel like he puts them, uh, kind of targets them. But anyway, we'll have a chat later in life when we get there. And I love this. He finishes with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here's what he says. Hey, listen, guys. You see my situation. I've let you into my life. We've had this horizontal relationship where we've been loving and serving each other. You know all about me. God has supplied all of my needs. And he did so providentially through you. You gave to me here. You gave to me here. You gave to me here. When other churches wouldn't give, you you gave. 1 Corinthians tells us that they gave out of their poverty. right? And so he says... Likewise, in the same way that God met my need through you, God's going to meet your need through somewhere, someone else. I don't know how that is. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like. But here's what he says. He says, don't look just down here. Trust in God. That is God who supplies your needs. It is God who cares about your life. And God will providentially move things around to, to meet those needs. Now, it's important to say God does not promise. Listen carefully. God does not promise to meet our greeds. But our needs. 
they're different things. Our West context, we, we put those things together. I have a need for that 70 million inch TV. I have a, I have a need for that. Uh, it's our needs. And I love this because he's saying God cares. God knows what it is that you're going through emotionally. God knows what it is that you're going through relationally. God knows what it is that you're going through in your career or whatever it might be that's going on in your world. God knows, God cares, and God will meet you in it. Trust Him. Be content knowing that He will bring exactly what it is that you need. And I can tell you there have been times in my life where I've been like, when? Like, I love the promise, when does it get fulfilled? Anyone been there? Any, any people like, yes, mm, amen, but now, now would be a really, really good time, in my view, to, to, to meet that one. And what he's saying is, hey, like me, like me, you're probably gonna, it's probably going to take a while. You're going to have to learn to trust him. And here's what, if you live in a community for long enough, you'll find is that there are hundreds of stories in this room of God meeting amazing needs, that it took time for people to realize that God was going to come through. And in the moment, we doubted. In the moment, we struggled. But then like a year later or two years later, God actually providentially moved a whole lot of things around. And then we're here and we're like, oh, this is way better than what I thought would happen over here. And this is why we need to have the horizontal, right? This is not just like there's Christian elites at the top who get like these supernatural things. I'd love that. (laughs) That's not the case. We're all equal before the Lord and God is meeting all of these different needs. And as we share and open up our lives, you're like, oh, God God did that for you? Yeah, God did that for you? Yeah. And is it because God loves those people more than that? No, it's not. It's because that's the character of God. And this is why he finishes on grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What is grace? Grace is how you summarize the entire Christian faith. That this is not based on you working your way to God and pleasing God and being approved by God by being a good little boy and a good little girl. This is God who is holy and transcendent, knows that you and I are broken. Knows that we, we, we can't measure up. And so in his grace, in his mercy, he descends to us. And he comes to us and he says, I know where you're at and I love you still. I know where you're at and I am here to help you. I know what you're going through. I know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I am here to lift you up. Grace is unmerited favor that you cannot earn God's love. You cannot earn his mercy. You cannot earn his forgiveness. It's free. You can choose to accept it. Through faith. Opening up your hands and saying, God, I receive your grace. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you should have learnt by now that that's not one thing you do once in your whole life. Today we're going to celebrate Elias receiving God's grace and responding to God's grace. But part of Elias' journey now is to learn that that's something he now does every single day. Because the Bible tells us that his mercy and his grace is new every day. And God has new grace for you, new mercy for you, despite yesterday, today. Will you receive it? Will you respond to it? Will you accept it? And will you live from it? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located in North Lakes. 
We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.